Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Airs LA, which will be a selection of articles from the periodical titled The Week, a magazine which publishes condensed versions of news articles from global sources. Today, I'll be sharing with you some articles from the July 28th and August 4th issues. Before I do that, I think I'd better remind you that uh, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired, and material or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. So let's begin with the uh, article from China uh, under the heading of Best International Columns. Headline, where education isn't a ticket to the middle class. China has more college grads than ever before, but they can't find jobs, said Sun Yu and Joe Leahy in the Financial Times from the United Kingdom. That's partly the fault of the tech crackdown that began in 2020. Tech, finance, and entertainment firms were slapped with suffocating regulations out of fears that they were too big and powerful, and that has choked off opportunities in what once were appealing sources of employment. Now the economy is emerging, slowly, from three years of punishing COVID restrictions. But the tepid recovery is mostly generating employment in low-end work, unattractive to university graduates. Take Yang, a student who graduated from a private university with an accounting degree. She finally found a position, but it pays only around $418 a month, about a third of what her father earns as a construction worker. And she's one of the lucky ones. More than a fifth of 16 to 24-year-olds in China are unemployed, a higher proportion than in any G7 country. Western analysts will seize on any indicator in their zeal to predict doom for the Chinese economy, said Jinping in Zubnunet.com from China. Sure, jobs for youth may be lagging, but the overall unemployment rate is just 5.2%. And while it's true that the post-COVID recovery has been weaker than hoped, the economy is strong. China's innovation-driven strategy of pursuing high-end, intelligent, and green growth has turbocharged the production of renewable energy vehicles and solar cells, while the added value of aircraft, spacecraft, and equipment manufacturing has leaped more than 25%. Consumption is up. Sale of consumer goods grew by 12.7% year-on-year, as is investment. Crucially, the rise of these two indicators hasn't resulted in inflation, as it often does in some developed countries. The International Monetary Fund now predicts that China will achieve its growth target of 5.2% this year and account for more than one-third of global growth. That is not a sluggish economy. Yet it's hardly the great Chinese rebound that was predicted, said Natale Labia in the Daily Maverick from South Africa. This week, GDP data showed growth of just 6.3% for the quarter, short of the expected 7.3%. The property sector, meanwhile, is crashing, 
with housing prices in some cities falling by 80% since 2020. If real estate continues to struggle and job creation continues to stagnate, the political consequences could be dire. Chinese stability has depended on one thing, economic growth improving the lives of everyone. University grads who can't see a prosperous future under this political system may agitate for a new one. For political reasons, China doesn't use the term middle class, said Zhao Jing in the South China Morning Post from China, but it did expect to transform a majority of its people into middle income earners. That prospect looks increasingly shaky. With fewer high paying jobs available, it has become very easy for an existing middle-income household to get kicked out of the club and very hard for a poor household to join in. All right, let's look at a column headline. Don't force Catholics to abet suicide. Canada's promotion of doctor-assisted suicide has gone way too far, said Brian Bird. It was a laudable concern for terminally ill people in extreme pain that prompted the legalization of medical assistance in dying in 2016. But that was later expanded to patients who weren't terminal. And as of next year, it will be extended to those whose sole underlying condition is a mental illness. Already, some have sought assisted death because they were unable to access disability housing. And now, British Columbian health authorities want to force Catholic hospitals to provide medically assisted deaths. That's right. Our government is trying to create these organizations into betraying their core convictions on life and death, while purporting to respect a faith tradition that rejects the termination of human life. It's not enough, advocates for death with dignity say for Catholic hospitals to transfer patients who seek such assistance to other facilities. Yet why not? The Supreme Court has ruled that doctors may choose whether to assist with such procedures. So shouldn't hospitals be allowed to make that same choice? Canada is supposed to exhibit tolerance around serious issues on which reasonable people genuinely disagree. That must include tolerance of religious faith. All right, we move on now to talking points. Headline, diet soda, an increased risk of cancer? Diet sodas, sugar-free chewing gum, cereals, even toothpaste and chewable vitamins. The artificial sweetener aspartame is used in more than 6,000 products, which helps explain why there was an uproar last week after the World Health Organization's cancer research arm classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic, said Miriam Nadaf in Nature. Approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 1974, aspartame, also known by the brand name Equal, was associated with statistically significant increases in breast, liver, and other forms of cancer, WHO said after analyzing numerous studies. 
The increased risk is so small, however, that it probably isn't worth worrying about, said epidemiologist Kitian Meyerowitz Katz in STAT. One of the studies cited by the World Health Organization found that drinking aspartame regularly for a decade increased cancer rates by 0.2%, a meaningless risk for the average individual. Despite WHO's announcement, big food just can't quit aspartame, said Julie Cresswell in the New York Times. It's one of the least expensive sugar alternatives, and people like the way it tastes. About eight years ago, PepsiCo responded to concerns about possible health risks by removing aspartame from its diet soda. But the replacement sweeteners, sucralose and acelsivame potassium, had a different taste, and sales flopped. Soon, aspartame was back in Diet Pepsi. So manufacturers are unlikely to change ingredients this time despite a recent spate of research suggesting that artificial sweeteners don't help weight control and are even linked to an increased risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. For years, people like me have assumed that switching to zero-calorie sodas would give us license to guzzle them guilt-free, said Susan Puckett in CNN.com. But studies have shown artificial sweeteners can trick the body into craving calories. In fact, said F.D. Flam in Bloomberg, a University of Texas study found that people who drink two or more diet sodas a day experienced waistline increases 500% greater than did people who don't drink the stuff. That may be because artificial sweeteners interfere with the community of microbes that live in our guts the microbiome, which play a major role in our health. So, rather than switch back to sodas, heavily sweetened with regular sugar or corn syrup, it might be best to put down the can and just pour yourself a glass of water. All right, moving on to this talking point about American men. Why so many are struggling. Young American men are in a crisis, said Krista Emba in the Washington Post. Submerged in video games and porn, many struggle to relate to women. They lack friends and long-term goals and struggle in a de-industrialized era in which physical labor is less in demand. They're being outpaced by women who are surging ahead in school and the workplace. More young men now live with their parents than with a roommate when, than with a romantic partner, said, and depths of despair from suicide and drug overdoses are rising. Cut loose from a stable identity as patriarchs deserving of respect, they feel demoralized and adrift, as if they don't know how to just be. Right-wing influencers, such as Canadian psychology professor Jordan Peterson, are speaking to the crisis by selling a model of masculinity built on misogyny and resentment of elites. Meanwhile, the left and the mainstream are losing men as progressives minimize the problem. 
This is all old news to conservatives, said Brianna Ozer in the Washington Examiner. Thinkers such as Senator John Hawley, a Republican of Missouri, have long worried about the state of men. But their common sense solutions, recognizing that boys need good father figures, accepting that men play distinctive, valuable roles in society, have been dismissed by the left as retrograde nonsense. Republican presidential candidates are showcasing their own models of masculinity in a testosterone primary, said Adam Wren in Politico. Mike Pence is appearing in a leather vest on a Harley. Donald Trump is attacking the, the Ron DeSantis literal manhood, and DeSantis has aired an ad loaded with images of ripped shirtless dudes. Laugh if you will. But Democrats have a masculinity problem, said Political Magazine. Conservative messaging that casts liberals and progressives as the enemies of masculinity is resonating, not just with disaffected whites, but with a growing number of blacks and Latinos. Facing tight elections, Democrats need to find a way to counter that. So does society, said David French in the New York Times. The challenge isn't rejecting traditional attributes of maleness or of manliness as toxic, but channeling and shaping them for virtuous purposes. Right-wing demagogues preach manliness, but with their mean-spirited pettiness, fail to mold what I consider positive masculine traits by acting with calm courage, conviction, and a sense of proportion. A vision of masculinity that promotes these values is a step forward, understanding what it truly takes to be a good man. And here's a small insert. Home insurance prices have skyrocketed in hurricane-battered Florida, hitting an average of $4,200, three times the national average. At least six insurers went insolvent in the state last year, and this month farmers stepped issuing new home, car, and umbrella policies in the state, citing growing risk exposure. And that was taken from The Guardian. All right, let's move on to a talking point. Headline, birth control, an over-the-counter pill. The U.S. just reached a major milestone in reproductive health care, said Dylan Scott in Vox. For the first time, the FDA has approved a birth control pill for over-the-counter sale, meaning Americans will no longer need to find a doctor to ask as the conduit between them, and one of the most effective forms of contraception. The drug, known as Opil, prevents pregnancy about 93% of the time, a higher success rate than condoms, 87% effective, spermicides, 80% effective, and other over-the-counter contraceptives. After the Supreme Court eliminated the national right to an abortion last year, the accessibility of contraception has become an increasingly urgent issue, said Pam Bellock in the New York Times. The FDA's approval of OPIL could help reduce unwanted pregnancies among women without insurance, 
as well as teenagers and others who might struggle with the time, costs, or logistical hurdles involved in visiting a doctor to obtain a prescription. Hidden underneath this historic decision is another set of firsts, said Rachel Gutman Way in The Atlantic. When Opel goes on sale next year, women will also have, for the first time, an over-the-counter treatment for heavy periods and cramps, as well as for endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, and some symptoms of menopause. It's all in the same progestin-based pill. But Opal's approval as an over-the-counter medication is not a magic wand, said Megan Ramney and Monique Rainford in CNN.com. The drug has fewer side effects than other hormonal birth control pills, which typically combine progestin with a form of estrogen, but does have more room for error. That's because the drug becomes less effective if you fail to take it at the same time, every day, every month. Still, O-Pill is better than no pill at all. It's not enough to merely have this medication approved, said Mai Fleming in Scientific American. O-Pill must also be affordable. There's no word yet on its price, which will require lawmakers to mandate that private and state-based insurance plans cover this medication, as they do for other over-the-counter medications. Opil should also be stocked on drugstore shelves rather than behind pharmacy counters. That will help vulnerable women avoid being shamed by pharmacy employees and customers, as has happened with other over-the-county contraceptives. If we can do all this, the FDA's approval will truly be a bright spot in an otherwise bleak landscape for reproductive autonomy. All right, let's move on to the uh, July 28th issue section on technology. Headline, Originality. Is artificial intelligence ripping off human authors? All companies are building the minds of wondrous machines by training them on copyrighted works of literature and art, said Zionab Chaudhry in The Globe and the Mail from Canada. That's the thrust of recent lawsuits, including one brought recently by comedian Sarah Silverman, alleging that artificial intelligence developers like OpenAI and Meta are showing no regard for copyrighted content, nor are they seeking consent from authors and artists. ChatGPT produces human-like responses to prompts because it has been trained on content created by humans, from Shakespeare to Atwood, Caravaggio to Coons. AI companies argue that any appropriation of copyright works to, re- to train AI falls under fair use, a copyright law exception if the material is changed in a transformative way. But copyright laws were simply not created with artificial intelligence and its capabilities in mind. It's frightening how artificial intelligence will trample on copyrights if it's given the right prompt, said Miriam Rosen in Financial Times. 
If you ask ChatGPT to write me a children's story about kids who go to a wizard school, it's not going to write Harry Potter, says Stanford Law Professor Mark Lenley. However, it will actually spit out several pages of Harry Potter if your prompt includes the first paragraph of the book. A recent Supreme Court ruling that pop artist Andy Warhol infringed upon a photographer's copyright hinged on a finding that Warhol's work was not transformative. That looms large in the AI debate. It's notable that Silverman's book wouldn't have been accessed by AI models if it hadn't already been pirated, said Michelle Chong in Quartz. Online, shadow libraries provide free access to pirated books that have been scanned and posted online. OpenAI has admitted that 15% of the training set for GPT-3 comes from two internet-based book aggregators, likely shadow libraries filled with pirated works. Yes, AI algorithms rely on existing works, but that doesn't justify a copyright power grab by lawyers and regulators, said Carl Jabo in Reason. Copyright law is already capable of dealing with the issues that AI raises. Recently, singer-songwriting Ed Sheehan won a case in which he was accused of copying the essence of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On in his hit song, Thinking Out Loud. And in 2018, a federal court ruled that non-humans could not claim copyright protection. After an animal rights group and a photographer for selling a book that included a selfie taken by a macaque monkey. What we need to do now is extend fair use to include AI-generated content, provided that the new work does not harm the market for the original work. Anything else will stifle innovation. And here's a short article titled, Innovation of the Week. What's new in tech? New pseudo-satellite drones can soar to heights of more than 60,000 feet and stay up there for months, said Alastair MacDonald in the Wall Street Journal. A unit of Airbus has already flown its drone, the Zephyr, more than 13 miles up for 64 days. It's capable of beaming down phone coverage for 7,500 square kilometers, the equivalent of having 250 telecom towers on the ground. Its height and longevity record may soon be trumped by the UK's BAE systems, which said its solar-powered PHASA-35 drone is designed to stay in the air for as long as a year. It has a wingspan of 115 feet, around the same length as a Boeing 737s, but weighs only as much as a typical motorcycle. All right, moving on in the July 28th issue to the area of the best business columns. Headline, Entertainment. Striking Actors Shut Down Hollywood. 
Hollywood studios thought they could ride out the skirmish with screenwriters and keep the entertainment factory going, said Meg James in the Los Angeles Times. Now, with Hollywood actors joining striking screenwriters recently for the biggest Tinseltown shutdown in more than six decades, things are not turning out that way. Movie shoots have ground to a halt, with big-budget sequels like Gladiator 2 and Deadpool 3 shutting down in the middle of shooting. A-list stars have bailed on films and TV marketing campaigns, including the premiere of Oppenheimer. Also recently, there's no hint of progress in negotiations. The 160,000-member Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA, has argued that streaming has enabled studios to unfairly cut their pay. They also want protections against the use of artificial intelligence to simulate background actors, potentially replacing extras on future movie sets. The simultaneous strikes could not come at a worse time for entertainment companies, who are still trying to grapple with the economics of streaming, lower box office figures, and the demise of traditional broadcast and cable. The us against them, haves versus have-nots, mood in Hollywood is straight out of Les Mis, said Brooke Barnes in the New York Times. Striking actors have pointed to the pay packages of studio heads. Warner Brother Discovery's David Zaslov got an astonishing $246 million in 2021. But beneath the surface, the studios were already facing existential questions. The domestic box office is still down 21% from 2019. The cable television model, which studios like Disney and Paramount have relied on for decades for fat profit growth, is over. Then, last year, Netflix reported a subscriber loss, and Wall Street's interest swiveled from the arms race for subscribers to a desire for profits. Unwieldy streaming services suddenly slashed billions of dollars in costs and eliminated more than 10,000 jobs. Now the unions are pushing back. There will be no fresh helpings of the White Lotus, The Last of Us, or even Emily in Paris beaming into front rooms when summer fades, said Vanessa Thorpe in The Guardian. Americans, and much of the world with them, has gotten used to an endless stream of high-quality entertainment. But now, they are coming face-to-face -to -face with the uncomfortable fact that even as entertainment choices have expanded, creators haven't shared in the bounty. In television, actors have traditionally had a Loss had a base of income from reruns and other forms of reuse, said Michael Schulman in The New Yorker. But streaming has scrambled that model and endangered the ability of working actors to even make a living. You might be tempted to dismiss striking actors as privileged elites whining about a dream job, said James Poniewozik in The New York Times. Don't. Because beyond a few superstars, the great majority of actors are in much the same spot as the rest of us. In the grand scheme, most of us are background players, facing down the same modern risk that every time a technology 
or cultural shift happens, companies will rewrite the terms of employment to their own advantage. And let us move now to the August 4th issue of the week. And we will begin with articles from the main stories. Headline, Israel in chaos as Netanyahu curbs court power. What happened? Israel was plunged into an unprecedented crisis recently after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right government defied broad public opposition to push through a law weakening the Supreme Court's oversight powers. As thousands of protesters massed outside Parliament, Netanyahu's allies in the Knesset voted 64 to nothing to end a law that enabled the court to override government decisions by declaring them unreasonable, with 56% opposing lawmakers walking out in protest. The limiting of court authority follows months of mass protests over the proposal, as well as condemnation from business, tech, and military leaders. Netanyahu argued that the old law gave liberal justices virtually unlimited powers to overturn decisions by elected officials. But opponents say the change, which polls indicate fewer than 25% of Israelis supported, ends a critical check on executive power in a country without a written constitution, at a time when Israel is ruled by the most right-wing, religiously conservative government in its 75-year history. This is the destruction of Israeli democracy, said opposition leader Yair Lapid. Some 20,000 protesters thronged central Jerusalem, clashing with police who used water cannons and skunk gas to disperse them. Malls and businesses closed in protest. The nation's largest union threatened a general strike and more than 11,000 military reservists, including hundreds of fighter pilots, have threatened not to report for duty. White House Press Secretary Kathy Jean Pierre said the vote, which followed Biden's public and private pleas to Netanyahu not to push through derisive legislation, was unfortunate. Opponents vowed to challenge the law in court setting up a possible constitutional crisis. Members of the ruling coalition said they will now seek further reforms, including expanding their power to select judges. With God's help, this will be just the beginning, said National Security Minister Inamar Ben-Grig. What the editorial said. With their misguided power grab, Netanyahu and his allies have ignited a political crisis of immense proportions, said Washington Post. This is only the first step for a far-right cabal that seeks to annex the West Bank and formally accept the ultra-Orthodox from military service. If Netanyahu continues down this road, he will splinter the already badly divided body politic and strain Israel's relationship with the United States. No, democracy isn't dying in Israel, said the Wall Street Journal. Despite the overwrought response from Israeli liberals and U.S. Democrats, 
This modest reform ends a policy that gave the court enormous discretion to arbitrarily override the will of an elected government. Biden's attempt to insert himself into an internal Israeli debate is unseemly and suggests he wants to topple Netanyahu's government. What the columnist said. Americans must face a hard reality, said David Rothkopf in the Daily Beast. America's special relationship with Israel has come to an end. That relationship was built on mutual democratic values we no longer share with Netanyahu and his theocracy, which denies fundamental rights to Palestinians and even the Arabs within its own borders. The blame is shared by American leaders who've long refused to acknowledge Israel's drift toward authoritarianism. Now, a pair of former U.S. ambassadors to Israel, Martin Indyk and Daniel Kurtzer, are voicing what was previously unthinkable, that we must consider ending the United States' $3.8 billion in military aid to Tel Aviv. Netanyahu's defiance is showing the limits of Biden's influence, said Alexander Ward and Nashal Tusi in Political. Netanyahu knew that neutering the Supreme Court would open a rift with a president who's long been a staunch supporter of Israel. But his biggest fear was angering the coalition of right-wing parties that keeps him in power. Only Biden's tough love here can save Israel from Netanyahu's worst impulses, said Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. What's at stake is nothing less than the shared values that underlie the U.S.-Israeli alliance. If Netanyahu continues to ram through laws weakening the courts without a semblance of national consensus, so he can annex the West Bank and crush Palestine's hope for their own state, it will be a disaster for both Israel and the United States. The U.S. has vital increases in the Middle East, and those are interests which we are entitled and indeed are required to defend. All right, let's move on to another main story and how it was covered. Headline, Ukrainians advance as Russia shells Odessa. What happened? Ukrainian forces made a major push to the south recently, mobilizing thousands of Western-trained reinforcements who had been held in reserve during the first eight weeks of the counteroffensive. About 100 Ukrainian armored vehicle units moved south of Kharkiv, a town in Zaporizhzhia Oblast, some 70 miles east of the Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant which the goal of grinding all the way to the coast to sever the land bridge between the Crimean Peninsula and Russian-occupied Ukraine. They face the dug-in Russian defense that includes tank traps and barrier minefields, stretching as much as 10 miles across. The enemy clings to every meter of occupied land, provides powerful resistance and uses its reserves, said Ukraine Deputy Minister Hannah Mohar, and at the same time offers significant losses. 
seeking to replace some of the 230,000 Russians killed or wounded in the conflict. Russia's legislators in Moscow failed the raised the maximum age for new conscripts from 27 to 30. On the battlefield, meanwhile, Russia stepped up to assault on the port city of Odessa. Since withdrawing recently from an un international deal to allow grain to be exported from Ukraine via the Black Sea, Russia has bombarded Odessa and other posts relentlessly, blowing up transport ultrastructure and grain warehouses. The port of Remy, which lies just across the Danube River, oh, Romania, some 700 feet away, was peppered with at least 15 drone strikes. Romanian President Klaus Ioannis called their attack an escalation that poses serious risks to the region's anxiety. What the columnists said. Ukrainian courage and resourcefulness can only do so much, said Daniel Michaels in the Wall Street Journal. Russian forces, while plagued by disorder, remain robust enough to man the 600-mile heavily fortified front, and they dominate the skies. While Kiev has scored noteworthy hits, including a drone strike on Moscow recently that inflicted damage near the Defense Ministry headquarters, the battle risks descending into a stalemate. Ukraine's losses are more than military, said Trudy Rubin in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Vladimir Putin has greenlit the bombardment of not just the ports, but also the exquisitely beautiful Odessa city center, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. A Russian missile blew half the roof off Transfiguration Cathedral, which had been destroyed by Stalin and re-consecrated in 2010. So much for Putin's nauseating pose as a defender of Christianity and Ukraine's Russian speakers. Ukraine badly needs weapons especially ammunition, said George Will in the Washington Post. Right now, we can't supply enough, as the U.S. defense workforce is one-third what it was in 1985. We'd have to scale up capabilities at a furious pace, as we did during World War II. That may sound like a big ask, but General Douglas MacArthur said all military disasters can be explained with one, two word, too late. And I think we will stop at that point. And that has been our coverage of part of the week for August 4th, 2023. And again, I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share the week publication with you.